0: Take your Bibles, please, and open them up to Matthew chapter 21. We take a break from our series, our study of the book of John this morning. I'm so grateful for uh, the scripture reading this morning. Thank you, Elliot. Brother and sister, dynamic duo this morning. Thank you for that. Palm Sunday it is. It's a special day, it kicks off what we know as uh, Holy Week. As we think about Matthew's gospel and the, the way that it's written, the first 20 chapters in Matthew's gospel covers Jesus' three-year ministry, it covers his life here on earth up to those final eight days. Then the last eight chapters of Matthew are devoted to the last eight days of his life and ministry. Clearly, since God is the uh, one telling the story and it's his story, he's bringing emphasis to a part he wants us to take note of. Jesus is the one kicking off the events of the week. I want you to notice that. Uh, He's in complete control. Think back to what Elliot just wrote. If you've read, if you've got your Bibles open to uh, Matthew 21. You'll notice that when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and he says to them, go into the village in front of you, gives instructions, and then the disciples carry it out exactly as he said, and it happened exactly as he said he would. Christ is in charge. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing overtakes him. And why is that? Well, because he's Jesus, right? Like, spoiler alert, we know that he is truly God and truly man. He is all in and fully present in these moments. And he never surrendered his lordship when he came humbly as a babe in a manger. But most kings don't roll like Jesus rolled. I mean, let's just acknowledge that. He moves differently than most. He is unique. And He is careful in the way that He does things. Jesus' mission at this time was not to arrive as the mighty conqueror with the scepter in His hand, but as the gentle, humble King, yes, but Savior of the whole world. Thank God for that. Amen? He came to save us by dying on the cross. He really is a King like no other. Our King, the King of all creation, comes humbly. He comes in meekness. He comes in a lowly way and he comes unlike any other king. i want to give you two headers this morning and then we're going to look at four proofs that Jesus gives of himself in this narrative that we've just read. Four proofs that he is in fact the king that the Jewish people were looking for. I want you to write down this morning your first kind of major header is Jesus is truly king. Jesus is truly king. If you look at verses 1 through 8, what we notice is that he uses the word Lord to describe himself. He said, go into town and tell them this and go get a colt and a donkey and tell them the Lord has needed them. The Lord has needed them. And so he says that and they go and do it in verses six and seven the the bible says the disciples went they responded to the lordship they said yes lord by the way two words that don't go together well are no and lord process that for a minute but it says the disciples went in verse six and did just as jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks them their cloaks and he sat on them i mean they did exactly as he said he's in charge he, he came in humility is the first thing I'd have you note there. This king, unlike any other king, is a king that embraces and embodies humility unlike anybody else. Remember how he showed up. He came as a baby in a manger. He was raised in Nazareth, a carpenter's son. He participates in John's baptism when John is inaugurating the new kingdom. He he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in peace and humility. Now, here's what he's doing, and and it's spoken of in our text. The giveaway's right there. But he's he's saying, I'm doing exactly what was said of me. In Zechariah 9.9, the Bible says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Watch this. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, you need to know this is just not how kings moved about places in the day. It's not how uh, people, the elite status, even our own culture, move around. I mean, they had entourages, they had uh, a lot of pomp and show when they showed up. Everything stopped when they came in. There was an announcement, a herald that would go before them, announce that they were coming, and then a lot of singing and things would happen. I'm thinking about. When, you know, on the uh, wonderful classic film that uh, we all know of so well, Disney's Aladdin. You know, when Aladdin rolled into town and, and had this big show of everything that happened and the big dancing and everything's going wild. That's the way kings rolled in. Probably not with a genie, but still, that's the way kings rolled in. The house lights would go down, the spotlight would come on, and then the announcer would say, presenting in all of his glory and splendor, the king. That's not how Jesus came into town. He fulfilled scripture. He is alone in his humility. He lived a humble life. He led a humble but powerful ministry. So I would submit to you that Jesus is alone in his humility. And the next point we see underneath the fact that Jesus is truly king is he is also alone in his purity. He's alone in his purity. If you look at verses 12 and 13 in the text, the Bible says Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables, the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's fulfilling two passages here. One about his zeal for the temple from Psalms and also Isaiah 56, 7, where God says that the burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at his altar for his house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Do you get this? It seems like a narrative. It seems like Jesus rolls into town on a donkey that goes to the temple, takes care of business. And then there's going to be some kids praising him. And then some other things are going to happen. And people are going to be healed. And yeah, that's just how Jesus rolls. But these are four messianic king fulfillments happening in rapid succession as he comes into town. This is huge. This is monumental stuff. Now, some of you in our Bible study uh, classes and courses were, were just wondering like, wait, were there two times in the temple or was there just one time? In the temple two times in the temple or one time in the temple well some interpreters think there was only one cleansing and that John just arranged his in a different way the synoptic Gospels have it in a certain sequence and John just put it in a different order Uh, but the evidence would seem to point to the fact that there were two similar but with enough distinction that we see two different cleansings one at the beginning of Jesus ministry another toward the end of his ministry if that's the case then history and context would tell us that the first cleansing of the temple was a warning to those that were there. Right? He walks in and says, Stop this. You're doing this wrong. Quit this. Gets the whip out, overturns what's going on and says stop this don't don't do this you're turning the house of God into something it shouldn't be turned into My God's house should be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers that first time was a warning this second time is a declaration of judgment on the leadership of Israel God is, is showing up to say but you're still doing this. this this is not what this is for why was he judging them? Because they had perverted worship into something less than what God had intended it for. Uh, let me just tell you, you and I are on dangerous and shaky ground when we pervert worship into something less than what God intended it to be. You don't get to dip a toe in the water. God's called you to be all in with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength to lavish your love on the lover. Of your soul. I'm not calling for hyper-emotionalism. No, sir, we reject that. But I'm calling for a pulse that engages the king of glory. He's pronouncing judgment against the leadership of Israel because they viewed God's people as chattel, just a means to their end. They didn't care about the people. They were trying to get a system in place to do what they wanted to do. They were lording over them as the Gentiles, not leading them and serving them the way that God had called them. That the leaders would presume to manage the affairs of God's people with money in the driver's seat caused Jesus Christ to pronounce judgment on the house of God. Now think about it. This temple is the very center of Judaism, and yet its worship was completely hollowed out. The piercing eye of Jesus looked at this and saw a den of thieves, not a house of prayer. What does Jesus see when he looks at our worship? I wonder. Jesus will not tolerate sin. He is completely intolerant in this age of tolerance. He is too holy to encounter sinners and leave them unconfronted in their sin. He always confronts sin. He does it with love. He does it with compassion. He does it like a good shepherd. But he has come to do this with outstretched arms, inviting whosoever will to cast all of their trust and faith on him, the lover of their souls. Jesus is king, and he is alone in his humility. He is alone in his purity. Watch this. All the religious leaders, even the really pure Pharisees, still knew what was going on in the temple and they turned a blind eye to it. So His purity far exceeds the purest that mankind had to offer in the time. He's also alone in His authority as the true King. He's alone in His authority. Look with me at verse 14, if you will. I love this. Right on the heels of Him going through the temple and blowing it up, so to speak. He, he, look at verse 14. It says, And the blind... And the lame came to him in the temple. Is that remarkable to you? Like that little prepositional phrase, in the temple. They came to him in the temple. It's not like Jesus had like the lights went down, the spotlight comes up. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the prophet of the hour, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And now anyone who has a need, please come forward. That's not what happened. He's just disrupted everything. And the blind and lame are like waiting and going, oh, this this is the Messiah. This is our guy. Uh, we want to respond to this in faith. The blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Wow. This is immediately after he confronts the leadership in the temple in Isaiah. Here's what he's fulfilling in chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. The Lord says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Stop for just a moment. I don't want to blow through that. Do you have an anxious heart this morning? Can you hear the Lord saying to you, be strong? Fear not. Behold, your God will come. Now, here's a word we might not insert, but God did. With vengeance against sin. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is such a beautiful text. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is truly king and he has all authority over all creation. He can speak a word and things happen the way that he speaks. The blind and lame knew this came to Him and were healed there in the temple that He had just disrupted in a marvelous way. Jesus has all authority still today, seated at the right hand of the Father, and He has everything you need. Later on in Matthew's narrative, we get the fabulous Great Commission and the precursor to that, which we often ignore when we quote it, is in verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to think for just a moment. I want you to think about that need that you've had for God to move in a powerful way in your life. I know for a fact that some of you have experienced that even this week. When you were sick and no help seemed to be available. When, when you are going through some personal crisis of a significant magnitude, when you're facing Financial ruin, when you are out of work and in need of a job, when you have lost a loved one and you can't stand under the weight of grief, when you feel overwhelmed like you're about to drown yourself. I want to tell you this morning no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter which state and at what time you find yourself in, I want to tell you something the power of God is still sufficient. For whatever you're facing. And he will sustain you. If he doesn't move the mountain. He'll move you. And if he doesn't change the circumstance. He can change you. And give you eyes of faith. To see him working in your midst. He didn't promise everything would get better. He promised to make us new. No matter who you are. God's grace and his provision. Are awesome. And they'll meet you in your point of need. Have you ever experienced this provision in your time of desperation? It's exactly what was needed most. In fact, it's like when our grandmothers were, but one of my grandmother uh, grandmothers used to sew and she would get these patterns out and she would cut out uh, on the cloth. She'd lay the pattern on top of the cloth and she would cut out exactly what was needed, an exact match to the pattern. That's exactly the kind of grace and provision God has for your life. It's not generic. He's not just slinging out handfuls of this and throwing some and hoping you can get a crumb here and there. No, no, no. He has custom-cut grace and provision for you. For you. For you. For the blind man or woman that came to Him. For the lame that needed to walk. God has everything they need in that moment. And He has everything you need. The greatest miracle of all is when God sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to be resurrected on the third day. If God has authority over sin, death, and hell, I've come to remind you, He has authority over that thing that's keeping you up at night. His grace is enough. Our King is alone in his humility. He's alone in his purity. And he is alone in his authority. And lastly, under this truly King header, he is alone in his reach. What do I mean by that? If you look at verses 14 through 16, you don't really see the cream of the crop coming to Jesus. I want you to notice what you see there. Verses 14 through 16. Let's look at it together. Matthew 21 14 through 16. The blind. The lame. Verse 15 says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So he's got blind, he's got lame, and he's got children coming to him. All of these would have been put in a back room in the temple of the day. These were not welcome guests. We didn't romanticize children and have lives that revolved around our kids, which is a whole separate issue. But we didn't really romanticize or idealize children and youth until after the romantic era of the Enlightenment. So that's, that's a new, relatively new thing historically. Uh, children were not to be seen or heard in that day. They were put off to the sides, And Jesus is saying, no, 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 these come to me. Multiple times in Jesus' ministry, He's pushing the well aside to get to the sick. He didn't come to just minister to the up and in. He came to minister to all people in all stages of life, in all manners of hurt. He's fulfilling that prophecy from Psalm 82 that we read this morning in our reflection, out of the mouth of babes, right? He's fulfilling that. But I want you to see, most of all, He is engaging the weakest of the weak. The blind, the lame kids, they matter to Him. And He's showing us His reach here as King. He's fulfilling prophecy. Hallelujah. But what's He teaching me and you today? You know what? The longer you're saved, the harder it is to remember what you were like before you were saved. The longer you're walking with Jesus, sometimes, and I'm not telling you to live in the past, but but sometimes you need a postcard from the past just to remind you of who you were before Christ. You were not on the A-list and God and as the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son were in heaven going, you know who we need to get on our team? Now that McKim Beckwith, he's something. Let's go out, let's plot a strategy to get him. We really need him, he's got a lot to offer. No, that's not how this plays out. It's you know who's wretched and in need of a savior? Anybody with a pulse, let's, let's save them and give them the offer of invitation. We, we need to remember, we didn't have it all together. God added us to his team, if you will. He moved us from the kingdom of darkness, not like the bench. He didn't take us off the bench and call us into the game. That's not the analogy that works here. In fact, Paul would write it this way in 1 Corinthians Chapter one, he said, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. God chose what is foolish to the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, because of him. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let no one boast. And the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. You and I were at the lowest of the low when Christ saved us. And I'm so thankful that he's telling that story when he showed up. I am that crippled man. By the side of the way. I am that blind man. I am the lame man. I am the dead man that was buried. Until Jesus spoke my name. And called me out of the grave. I am that sinner who was defeated. And so unclean. But now walking in victory. Why? Because I met a Nazarene. From the other side of the globe. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the power of his word. And the working of his spirit. That called me out of darkness. And into his marvelous light. He is the king alone. Nobody competes with him. He's not worried about his status or his title, and he's not seated at a table among equals. He sits above it all. The earth is his footstool. This is our king, and he's truly king. Here in this passage of this Holy Week Sunday passage, Jesus has clearly declared his kingship. He arrives on a donkey, just like it was prophesied. He's zealous for the temple, just like it was prophesied. He heals the sick in the temple, the only recorded miracle in Jerusalem, just like it was prophesied. Children are praising him as the Messiah, just like it was prophesied. Now, these are Jewish prophecies that should have made all of the light bulbs go off for all of the Jewish people there. But it didn't go off for all of them. But here's the thing. He's not just a Jewish king. He is king of all. All of these are Jewish promises, but they're bigger than that. Remember, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. The king of England, which we used to say queen. I've got to get used to that. For so many years, it was the queen of England. But the monarch, I'll say that, of England looms larger than life. Like when they're on TV, face it, a lot of us tune in. We're just curious. Right, we don't really have that here. So we're we're curious by this. Um, he he has his own palace. The king does in, English, in in England. There's there's only one problem. He has no real power given him. He looks good. Well, I mean, he dresses nice. Uh, he looks like one of the most powerful men in the world, but he can't vote and he can't veto. His position in this country it is one of ceremony and courtesy. What England does to their king or their monarch, many of us do to the one that we call king. We give him verbal recognition. We encase him in beautiful palaces called churches. We, we get people coming to pay homage to him. But when it comes to decision making and veto power and voting, we don't need him. We acknowledge his position without giving him the credit for the power that accompanies it. That's not how God works. He's king whether you allow him to be or not. He doesn't need your permission to rule and to reign. He is king. He's king all by himself. And he stepped in to announce his kingship in this broken world. It was not an ideal world. People had wrong expectations of leadership. There were broken people around. People were perverting worship. And Jesus showed up riding on a donkey. Second header this morning. It won't be as long as the first. It's just that you've got to go through the one to get to two. He's truly worthy. Why do we do the palms on Palm Sunday? What's all this about? Why do we do communion? Why do we uh, do baptism the way we do baptism? Because Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our praise and adoration. We see the crowds laying down their cloaks on the road. We see them cutting off branches and waving them and spreading them down and folks going before him crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, that word Hosanna. You know, it's a cry of, it's a cry of adoration, but it's a cry saying, save us. Save us. He's the only king that can save. He's worthy. We see it in the children worshiping in verses 14 through 16. The blind and lame coming because he is worthy of their faith and adoration. I want to tell you something in a broken world with a messed up temple where Jesus went in and had to turn over the money changers table and disrupt all that with leaders turning a blind eye to sin with with blind and lame and all of that going on. I want to tell you something. True worship still has a way of breaking through all the noise and the pomp. And the circumstances, God has a remnant of people that will say, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I know Jesus Christ. He's truly king and he is worthy of my praise and adoration. From this text alone, why would you say God is worthy, Chad? Why would you say Jesus is worthy? Well, from this text alone, we've seen that he was the promised king. That's enough reason to praise him. Uh, But not only that, he's a humble king. That's almost an oxymoron. That's enough reason to praise him. He's the pure and holy king. There's nobody like him. That's enough reason to praise him. Here's the one that ought to make us all at least have one of those whoop moments. He's the saving king. That's reason enough to praise him. This is our God. He will always be worthy. His first arrival, we get to catch a glimpse of because God recorded it in the Gospels for us to see. It's a magnificent thing that we get here. Beautiful proof text that he is, in fact, the promised one. What a God. What a Savior. It ushers in this age of grace in a way that makes salvation accessible to all who will believe. It's a season of salvation during which these turbulent chapters of world history can be turned upside down. Because of who Jesus is. You and I can still come to this King. And and we can come to His side and be saved from wrath and judgment. There's still time, even today, this morning, you can accept the forgiveness that King Jesus extends out because He has come in that gentle, holy way. He died on the cross for our sins, submitting Himself to death. Freely He gave His life. If you will renounce your allegiance to self and success and money and family and and physical pleasure and security, whatever else that's ruling your life more than Jesus, you can be saved and receive this king as your king and swear allegiance to him and be on the Lord's side, the winning side, with everlasting joy. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest indeed but there will come an end to this season of the king's status his first arrival he comes as a humble king the next time he comes he's coming as conquering king with judgment in his hand right. the day is coming and perhaps soon when the kingship of jesus will look very differently than it looks now here is a description of that kingship that john saw in the last book of the bible In Revelation chapter number 19, the Bible records beginning in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on the head is called Faithful and True, and His righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written on it that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, The Bible clearly tells us that when Jesus returns the second time, we read it in our daily reading as a church family in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. When He's revealed, He's coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. When the kingship of Jesus appears in the skies like that, it will be too late to switch sides. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus wants us to see this morning that he is the king that the Jews had been looking for, longing for, but he's not just the Jewish king. It's not a tribal or a national kingship. It is a global and universal kingship. And it's a kingship that invites all who will trust and believe to follow Him. He's King like no other. And right now, this meek, lowly, welcoming, seeking, forgiving, patient King is calling us to follow Him. But in the Bible's timeline in just a few matter of days from this Sunday text, He will shed His own blood to save all who will accept that free gift of amnesty and surrender their lives to Him. Until He comes again, this is is the season of His kingship. His kingship now saves sinners. That's us. How do we declare His kingship as a people? The little uh, palm branches are cool. They're not just the bludgeon your brother or sister with during the sermon. That's okay. What you do after church is up to you and your family. How do we do it? Just waving those? Just singing songs? I think we do it by crying out to Him to save us, first and foremost. If we're still ruled by anything other than Jesus, it's time to Surrender. I, I think by surrendering our lives to Him every day as believers. Asking the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we might walk and keep in step with the Spirit every moment of the day. Exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our marriages, in our work relationships, in our schools, in our learning, in however we rule and, and reign in our day, that we surrender that to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we declare His kingship by following His Word. I think we declare His kingship by loving others with no need of return of love, I think we declare his kingship by serving one another in humility, by knowing, loving and obeying Jesus together as a church family, by making disciple-making disciples of our nations, of our neighbors and the nations, by singing his praises together lots of ways we declare his kingship. But this morning, as Julia's coming as a church body, we're going to declare his kingship in two very special ways. We're going to declare that Jesus is king along with Aaron, Alex, Jesse, Caleb, Paisley, and Aralyn. We're going to declare Jesus is king as these kids follow Jesus in believer's baptism and obey his command. They've renounced the kingdom of this world and pledged their allegiance to Christ. We'll declare his kingship today as we watch young people buried with him in death and raised to walk in newness of life. And in just a moment, we're going to declare his kingship as we come to the Lord's table and celebrate communion together. I wonder if you might say, and we could declare this together, kids, if you've got those little palm branches, let's pick them up. I've got one... Thing left i'll put on the screen it's the hosanna slide let's say this together and kids adults alike kids at heart if you want to wave them you can wave them let's say it together shall we hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest hallelujah let's pray this morning and prepare for the lord's table a forgetful people. And so you gave us an ordinance and a command to observe the Lord's Supper, this time that we have together, Holy Communion that we celebrate together in remembrance of you. That's what we're going to do today. Lord, would you be with us in that special way that you are as we worship you in spirit and truth together? In Christ's name, amen.